I saw a news clip several years ago now of a youth choir that was performing down in New Orleans. They were in the French Quarter on those rounded steps right across from the cathedral uh, next door to Cafe Du Monde. Some of y'all are familiar with where those steps are. The youth choir was performing. There wasn't much of a crowd, a few passers-by, mostly parents of the teenagers. Uh, they were performing some Lenny Kravitz song, and there was a teenager kind of leading the way with a guitar. Well, toward the end of the song, a man approaches the choir and kind of reaches for the guitar as if to ask for it. It was Lenny Kravitz. He heard his song being played from down the street, and he came to participate, to help out. And, uh, and so, of course, the, the young man hands his guitar over, and Lenny Kravitz leads the youth choir in his own song. It was really a neat clip, a neat experience, I'm sure. Well, when I think about that story, and really think about this, imagine if anybody else had walked up and reached for that guitar. Anybody. It would have been considered terribly rude and intrusive. And honestly, it would have been a great insult to the young man who was playing the guitar and leading in the song. But when the man who wrote the song shows up, when he asks for the instrument, well, the situation takes on an entirely new life. Well, y'all, as we look today at John chapter 1, we get this sense of Jesus, something we, we couldn't see directly at the very beginning of the gospel last week. See, last week we did see uh, that from the beginning, Jesus is God. That Jesus is the creator. He has always existed. He himself is in very nature God. Jesus created us. He's the giver of all life. And he is, John says, the light that shines in the darkness. I mean, these are amazing mountaintop kind of statements that John is making. But here today, and of course throughout the gospel, we'll see these great big truths start to come a little bit closer down to the pavement. We're going to begin to see a little bit more uh, practical, real-life connection, not just lofty truths, and today the, the, what we're going to see is still quite lofty, but we're going to see how these things about Jesus, these massive divine realities, uh, enter into our reality and how they connect. Um, I think it was Francis Schaeffer who coined this term, grace touches nature. The things of God are not meant to remain uh, for us abstract and far away, but God comes near. He brings grace to us, and there's an intersection here. And we begin to see that with, with clarity today, uh, and John will continue to build on it as we go. So the ideas are still big today, but they begin to become maybe a little more concrete. And here's what, what it means. When John says, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. Specifically, we're going to see today that Jesus, the light, the one who created the world, enters into the world he made. The, the divine author writes himself into the story, as it were. And so let's look together at John chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 6 through 13 today. 
And here in verse 6, there's a, a slight departure uh, in that John, John brings into the narrative a familiar name, a familiar person. If we've read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will certainly um, recognize him. Verse 6 says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now, I remember for, at first reading, maybe when I was a teenager, being so confused. Why is John referring to himself in the third person? And what's really happening here, the gospel author John is talking about a different John, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who is hugely important in the whole Bible, but certainly in the narrative of the Gospels. He continually shows up, especially in the early parts of the Gospels, because he is, uh, and we'll see this more in the coming weeks, he is uh, an essential piece of the puzzle for God bringing his son into the world. Uh, in fact, here's, this is something that Luke says about uh, John the Baptist, that, uh, that John doesn't fill in all the same blanks that some of the other Gospels do. So this is from Luke chapter 3. Just a, a quick little paragraph here. That he, John the Baptist, came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Uh, what we see is that uh, John the Baptist is a forerunner. God uh, appoints him and sends him to, be a, um, to go ahead of Jesus, to come right before Jesus, to pave the way for him by calling the Jewish nation, the people, to repentance. And so John became wildly popular in his time. And people were so curious, they would leave from where they lived in the cities, and they would go out into the wilderness to see him and to listen to him preach, to be baptized by him. John was baptizing people. He, was, uh, he, he himself had many disciples who were following him. But here in the Gospel of John, the clear focus that uh, the author John gives to John the Baptist is, it's his ministry of witness. And that's the word he uses, his witness. And we see that in verse 7. He came, John the Baptist came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. That, that language is very... Um, very much judicial system kind of language. You see, there's, there's witness, there's testimony. Uh, I've never done this myself, but I know if you are a witness on the stand giving testimony, that is serious business. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. And if you bear false witness, if you lie in that stand, you are not only breaking the law of the land, but you are also breaking God's law. God said... Do not bear false witness. And so when John the Baptist is sent by God to bear witness, to testify about Jesus, he's putting his entire life on the line, all his reputation, all his ministry and credibility, everything about John the Baptist is, is in a sense existing for this one central and primary purpose, to bear witness to someone else, to testify about Jesus, to point people to Christ. Now, there, there's much more to see and to say about John the Baptist, and we'll see it uh, on through chapter 3. 
But here's, here's a point worth considering before we move on. John the Baptist had a totally unique ministry. There's, there was nobody else ever quite like him and no one else since. But I hope we see this, that, that John the Baptist's ultimate purpose, his ultimate purpose for living, is the same as what our ultimate purpose is and ought to be, to bear witness to the light. That, that's the reason we all exist. That's the reason God has called us to his son Jesus, is that we will see, just like John, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. That's what John says, and he says it with joy before he leaves the narrative in chapter 3. And ultimately, that's, that's true for all of us. It ought to be that increasingly in my life, my ambition, my desire is for Jesus to increase, for my love for him to increase, for my witness in the world to be more and more about him and not about me. And so we see in John something that we ought to, uh, to, to share and carry along. Our ministry does not look like his, and it's not meant to, but our ambition. Are we witnessing, are we testifying about the light in how we live and how we speak? Well, now John, the gospel writer, is going to turn his attention back to Jesus, chiefly to Jesus. He keeps mentioning the light, and in your Bible, at least in mine, that word light continues to be uppercase L. We're talking about Christ. Not that he possesses light, but that he is the light. And now John is going to, um, to give us a more concrete understanding of what that means. So remember, I'm kind of thinking of this like an anchor today. Back in verse 5, what we saw last week, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Well, now we see, beginning in verse 9, what that means a little more clearly. Here's what John says about Christ. There was, verse 9, the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into the world, and those who, uh, I'm sorry, he came to his own, verse 11, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Uh, right here, and this is a fairly short paragraph, we get a pretty, a pretty complete picture of who Jesus is and also what he came to accomplish. There was the true light. John says of Jesus, meaning Jesus is the ultimate light. He's the purest, the greatest. There is no more perfect, there's no more sufficient person in all the universe than Jesus. And I know this seems like common sense, especially if you've trusted Jesus and you've grown up around church, but there's nowhere else for us to look for light and life. There's no better God can do than what he's already done in the sending of his son. There's no person and there is no thing that we're meant to look beyond Jesus as if something else is on the way or something else could somehow complete us. No, we are complete. We have all we need and then some because there is a true light, a final and ultimate light. And he comes into the world, John says, 
to enlighten every person, every man. Now, when John, when John told us that the light shines in the darkness, this is what he's talking about. Jesus comes into the world to shine upon everyone. And so it's worth, it's worth mentioning this, that when, when John continues to give us this term, light, uh, if, if we are uh, students of the Bible, well, this is not the first time the word light has come up. It's a consistent symbol given to us throughout the scripture. Light always for us in the Bible is a symbol of truth and of righteousness and a symbol of grace. And so when it comes to Jesus uh, entering into, shining light upon the darkness, he's not just turning his attention to the world. He's not just acknowledging the darkness, but he's entering in to expel it. He is the embodiment of truth and righteousness and grace, and he's bringing himself to bear to the whole world he enlightens. To the whole world, he comes to shine. It's an amazing picture. Now, up to this point, we, we clearly see a problem. There's darkness. But it seems, at least to me, that through verse, I guess, 9, it, things are shaping up pretty nicely. <laughs> there is a God who loves us, who loves us enough to send his Son to shine his light into the darkness so that we may be saved. Isn't that great? And it is great. But John is going to reintroduce the problem for us. Last week we saw it. He calls it darkness. But he didn't elaborate. Well, here we see, in verse 10 and 11, we see a sad irony, to be honest. As to the light that has come into the darkness, look at what happens in verse 10, because we're going to see this lived out throughout the Gospel of John. Verse 10 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Jesus enters into the world that he created. He writes himself into his own story. One commentator says it like this, Jesus came to breathe his own air and to walk upon his own dust. He, he partook of all that he made. And, and most of all, Jesus came to relate to and to save those whom he created in his own image. He didn't just come for the experience. It wasn't a vacation for him to check things out for himself. No, he came to save those whom he created lovingly in his own image. Those who were living in darkness rather than the light, he came to bring his light to us. And yet, John says, he was a complete stranger to us. The world knew him not. Now, how could that be? How is that possible? Well, y'all remember what, what John has already told us about humanity. He didn't elaborate, but he, he gave us the word darkness. And y'all, that word darkness means more than simply, it certainly means more than physical darkness. It's a spiritual term. It's a moral term. But it means more than even just bad behavior, sinful behavior. That's an easy connection for us to make. 
But in the Bible, again, out beyond John, throughout the scripture, darkness is a symbol the same way that light is a symbol. And it is for us a symbol of blindness and of ignorance and lostness. No one is meant to walk in the darkness. No one is meant to be consumed by the darkness because it means that we are spiritually blind and ignorant and lost. And so when John says, the world did not know Jesus, that is a statement of just how deep and thick the darkness is. It's not a simple problem that can be solved merely by flipping on a switch. It's a deep spiritual reality. Uh, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this. And uh, I, I'm going to read from, from Romans 1 because I think Paul captures it. Not just what the darkness is symbolically, but how it manifests, how it actually takes control and covers us. And so this is from, from Romans chapter 1. This is a full paragraph, but it doesn't require just a whole lot of explanation. It's pretty clear in what Paul says, Romans 1 verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, we, are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul is telling us there what human nature does. We take the revealed knowledge of God, the light, and we suppress it. We squash it. We ignore it. We walk away from it. We will substitute anything else for God. And the outcome is that we only end up in deeper darkness, further from the light, sinking more and more into ourselves and away from the truth and grace of our Creator. This is what is meant by Jesus came into the world He made and the world knew Him not. The darkness is that thick. The darkness is that dark. But John gets even more specific. Back to John chapter 1. He doesn't speak in generalities only. He gets, he gets specific and the words really get more painful. Verse 11 again. He came to His own and those who were his own did not receive him. So this is more than just ignorance here. This is rejection. Here, here John is speaking when he says his own, those who are his own. Not general, but specific. John is talking specifically about the nation of Israel here. That Jesus was born as a Jew. Jesus came from the line of Abraham. 
He came as the hope of Israel. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the rescuer, the deliverer. He is the one who would fulfill all of God's promises, all of these promises that make up the Old Testament, which was the book of God's people, the law, everything about what God had revealed in times past was pointing to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. He was the one who would sit on the throne of King David forever and ever. And yet his own people to whom he came did not receive him. The religious leaders especially, but even the nation by and large rejected Jesus and eventually crucified him. Those who we would think would be most likely to receive him with joy and acceptance, so often we see the exact opposite. And y'all, as we read through John, we're going to see it come up time and again. The Savior comes to the people he created. He comes to the nation he birthed, whom he rescued out of Egypt in the Exodus whom he made the promises to and sent the prophets to and sent kings for, all to point ultimately to him and his salvation. He would fulfill all these eternal promises in his own life. And yet he was scorned every step of the way, rejected. Uh, his own people even accused him of being born of Satan rather than coming from God. Y'all, imagine if the youth choir had Lenny Kravitz arrested and carted off to jail for daring to intrude upon their performance of his song, we'd be shocked. We'd think, how foolish, how ignorant, how cold of them to do such a thing. We all, here in John 1, something infinitely more egregious is taking place. The creator enters into his own world to save those made in his own image. And they would not receive him. Later in John chapter 3, Jesus explains this. He gives the reason behind this. He says, the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, up until verse 9, we were flooded with good news. It seemed like we were going in a positive direction. And now all of a sudden, coming to a screeching halt, verses 10 and 11, and it may seem hopeless for us. Wait a minute, the world didn't know him? His own people didn't receive him? So what hope is there then? And in this case, I do want to remind us of this, this anchor verse, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And this is so significant for us that we anchor ourselves in that truth. The darkness is strong. The darkness has a hold on people, so much so that we would be ignorant of God when he enters the world and that we would even reject and push back against the Son of God and put him on a cross. The darkness is that bad, but no amount of darkness can extinguish the light. The darkness did not overcome it. And we see that in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, 
but born of God. Now, this is a scripture you can build your whole life on right here. And as many as have received Christ, and Paul, uh, John speaks in the past tense, of course, but it's not meant to stay in the past tense. This is forever true now. This is true right here and right now. As many as receive Christ, who believe in his name, he gives us the right to become children of God. Now think about the culmination of what John has told us up to this point. In the first 13 verses, there is an eternal God revealed in Jesus Christ, who is God, who created us. He made himself known to us. He's, he's revealed himself. He hasn't hidden himself from us. He's come to us by shining the light of his goodness and righteousness and grace and truth. He's brought his light to bear in the darkness. And so, okay, the question may be then, what do we need to do in order to possess what he's come to give us? What must we do? He's fulfilled his part. What's mine? And the answer is given right here. Receive him. Believe in his name. Trust him. John is talking about faith. And y'all, we will see this all throughout the, the Gospel of John. How the God of grace, the God of mercy, brings his grace to us. We have a problem. We've discussed it. Our problem is sin, and because of sin, we live in darkness. So what's the solution? Well, if left to ourselves, we're going to do what all religion basically aims to do. If the problem is me and my bad behavior, then the solution is me and my good behavior. Simply flip the script. Turn it around. If I've done bad things, then the only way out of my bad things is to atone for my badness with good works. And that is absolutely natural. It makes perfect sense. And yet it is completely opposite of the gospel message. Y'all, gospel does not mean good advice. It means good news. It's a proclamation of something that has been done. See, it is his light that shines in the darkness and enlightens us. It is his life given for us. It's Jesus entering in to show us this, that the solution to our sin is not found in us. And I realize that that bucks against all self-help advice. If you find a self-help book or blog or video or any such thing, it's going to tell you this, that all of your problems find their solution right here. It's in you and it's in me. And the gospel says, no, the solution is in someone else. It's in Christ. The only one who is truly righteous, who is truly full of grace and truth, who is truly God, and who has a light strong enough to extinguish and expel the darkness. Our solution is him, is receiving him. We become children of God, John says. We now walk in the light as he himself is in the light. John said that later in 1 John, because we have received Jesus Christ and the gift of his grace. If it seems too good to be true, we're meant to feel that. That there's no work required for us. There's no earning on our part. Only receiving all that God has come to do and to give. And you notice there's an interesting phrase here. It's interesting, at least to me. John says, having received Christ, he has given us 
the right to become children of God. And I struggle with that term, right, because to me, a right feels like something I've earned, something I deserve, and I know I don't deserve Jesus. I typically use the word privilege more than I use this word, right. But John makes no mistake here. And he's certainly not talking about something we've earned, but something we've been given. We have a right by virtue of who we now are and of who God is. If, we are a ch- if you are a child of God, recognize that. The right to be a child of God means that God has brought you into his family, that you have full adoption, full inclusion into the family of God. You're no longer living in outer darkness, but you've been born again, born anew into true eternal kinship with God. And that's a new birth, we're told, that has nothing to do with blood, that is uh, our, our ancestry or our uh, nationality. It has nothing to do with who our parents are, where we come from, nothing about human will or the flesh, nothing that we exert or accomplish. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has everything to do with God. It is God who gives the new birth and makes us his own. Now, this is amazing. But as we close, I want to try to apply it to our hearts, maybe a little bit deeper. Uh, And I hope this analogy makes sense. We're told right here that having received Christ, we are born anew, a new birth, as God's children and all of the rights that come along with it. that's, That's an amazing thought. But so often, at least for me, and I suspect for many of us, we don't function that way. I don't live as if I really believe that. It seems too intimate. It seems too too good to be true, perhaps. Or it seems like too too much of of a commitment to be that endeared to God, to be that close to God. I I believe that, that for a lot of us, It's easy for us to kind of imagine ourselves not so much as God's children, but maybe more like God's neighbors. And and here's what I mean. See, neighbors are polite and nice, and a good neighbor kind of knows his or her boundaries. We we, we keep a nice, respectful distance. We don't bother each other. Um, But, you know, occasionally we get invited into the house. And as any good neighbor does, we, we, uh, we respect the house and the rules of the house. We don't exert our rights. You know, we don't go uh, rummaging through the fridge. We don't take a nap on the couch. We don't grab the control, uh, the the remote control and start changing the channels. You know, we don't don't open up doors and start, you know, looking through the drawers and bedrooms. These things don't belong to us. This is not my house. I'm just the neighbor. I'm just the guest, right? And I really wonder how many of us, we kind of we operate that way when it comes to our relationship with God. Um, with, when it comes to God, we have a nice, polite relationship. You know? And, and we, we kind of keep a respectful distance. We don't want to be intrusive. We don't want to ask or expect too much of God. And frankly, I, you know, we don't want him to ask or expect <laughs> too much of, of us. And, and so we, you know, we, we like when we're invited in and we'll come in from time to time. But there's always this sense of 
good, close, but not too close relationship. And we like it that way. It's easier that way. It's neater that way. Um, and y'all, I just, if that, is, if that re- represents you at all, then I, I want you to see, and I hope I'll see this, the radically wonderful difference of what the gospel actually is. Y'all, God did not send Jesus into the world, into the darkness, so that you and I could just move into God's neighborhood, so that we could get close enough, you know, to, to relate to one another, but not too close. So that God could commit himself to us, but not, you know, not too much, because we're hard to deal with. And that we could commit ourselves to him, but not wear out our welcome, not ask or expect too much of one another. <laughs> no. When God sent his son to the earth, it was with the full intention and expectation that he would make you his child, not his neighbor. That he would not bring you near, but that he would bring you all the way in. He has given you the right to become a child of God. You have a new family. You have a new home. It is your home. And you're meant to feel at home in the love and mercy of God. There's nothing God has withheld from you. There's nowhere in God that is somehow off limits to you. You're his child. And by faith, we become sons and daughters of God. We have all the privileges, all the rights, all the access, all the graces and blessings that come with genuine family relationship. And y'all, this was God's idea. We're not intruding upon him. This was his idea. While we were yet sinners, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us. Because God is not content just to have you close. He wants to bring you in. He wants to give you new life in him. Y'all, the divine author has written himself into the story. The creator has come into his own creation and to those made in his own image. John says he is the true light. And because he is the true light, he is the one able to outshine all the darkness. Um, God is not content for a nice, polite relationship. He wants you. He desires to make us his children so much that he would send his son into the world to die to make it so. And so may we receive him and may we receive him with joy and with gladness, knowing that it is the light of the world come to shine upon us, not to improve upon us or get us a little closer to the finish line, but to bring us all the way in and give us the new birth as sons and daughters of our heavenly father. Would you pray with me? Father, would you impress this upon my heart this morning? I pray for our hearts. And in, in my own imperfect way, I, I do hope that we, we see what I was trying to say. Because I know, I know it's present in me, a desire to be close to you. But Lord, I know I'm unworthy. I know I don't deserve to be your child. And so I, 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 maybe I keep my distance. Or I don't, I don't want to commit myself fully. <laughs> and so maybe I just kind of 
maintain a polite separation, whatever it may be, Lord, if that's true of us, impress upon our hearts the awesomeness of Jesus Christ who did not withhold anything in bringing his light to bear in the darkness. He poured himself out. He became one of us, a bondservant, and he became obedient to the point of death on a cross. Lord, remove from us any any boundaries that we might set up. And may, Lord, may we come all the way in and embrace this gift, the gift of life, the gift of receiving Christ and becoming children, the right to become children. That, Lord, you, you don't just let us hang around. You bring us in and you love us. Father, where we have, um, where I've missed that, where we've missed that, or give us a clear picture of how you initiated, it was your idea, you planned it out before you created anything else. And you did not wait for us to, to, to merit, to be worthy of it. But in love and for your glory, you've done it all. Help us to see it, to savor who you are, and Lord, to delight in the new birth. I'm a son of the heavenly Father because I have received Jesus Christ. Lord, let nothing else be so sweet to us as that precious news. And Father, help us where, where we see uh, the Creator entering in Lord, help us uh, to, to embrace him at every turn in everything we do so that our ambition might look like John's ambition to point to Jesus, to let our lives be a witness to him, the one who has saved us. Lord, let everything about who we are uh, bear testimony of the grace and mercy, the truth and righteousness, the goodness the all-consuming worth of our Savior. And we ask it today in his wonderful name. Amen.